0: Banning the Nerdosphere, talking about everything you want to hear. From comics to cosplay, from the cinematic universe to fan films, and everything in between. It's time to get down and nerdy. Here are your hosts, James Witham and Nick Battaglia.
1: It's a very special 129th edition of the Down and Nerdy podcast. And I say that because it was Nick's birthday this week. I know I usually open the show, but Nick... I think that because it's your birthday, I'm going to give you the floor, sir.
2: Yes, yeah, so just an update. No, I cannot tr- climb trees at the age of 28. So I know I said last week, I kind of teased. That I might be giving an update on that, so yeah, I'm sorry, I'm treeless right now.
1: <laughs> At least you've still got one, the one good limb, though. So At least i still got There's the one good that.
2: limb. Well, things you can do with the one good limb, and get your mind out of the gutter, is the fact of the matter is, I can play video games with it. Yes. So, this week, of course, Monday, was National Video Games Day, so I had an idea, I said, you know what, let's discuss in this opening our fondest memory of playing a video game, and our worst. Now, it can be the arcade. It also can be console. You can do both if you like. I'll go first. My favorite arcade memory, of course, was going with my dad. Every Sunday, my dad would take me to uh, either Funscape, which was an arcade. It was like a two-story arcade, two-floor arcade. It was awesome. Or before that, there was a place called Sports Star 2000. And just dropping five, ten bucks every Sunday playing Marvel vs. Capcom or going to Star and playing the big purple X-Men, you know, arcade Uh game. Stuff like that. But in the arcades, I was a big fan of fighters. And so just playing Tekken. Like Tekken 3 was my shit. Like, you know, everybody has the whole Mortal Kombat and everything else. Mortal Kombat was great to play in the arcade. It was fun. Yeah. But Tekken. Growing up the longest lines I saw were Tekken.
1: There was something about Tekken that I just right. loved in the arcade, yeah.
2: And it's just I mean, it was just great. And I mean I would of course spam the hell out of like, the computer people because I'd be Kazuya and just do his little spinning kick that he <laughs> does. <laughs> or, or or play as Eddie and just, you know, fucking troll people with him as well. But I mean it was that was my favorite arcade memory, my favorite console memory was I think beating Super Mario 3 for the first time on NES. <laughs> like that,
1: That's really funny that you say that.
2: What, was that yours?
1: Uh, the first time I beat Super Mario 3 was I actually had, I don't know why, but I was watching one of my cousins. Right. And we had like 20, 25 people. Mm-hmm. Over the house, and none of these kids had ever beaten it or seen it be beaten before. So right. I'm sitting there playing it, right? And you know, you're at the last, they're at the last level with Bowser and everything like that. And I've got people like cheering me on, like so I'm in it's... a friggin' stadium. So I'm like jacked right playing this game, and then he falls through, and everybody's like, "Yeah!" And I'm like, "This is great!"
2: <laughs> and it was kind of like you ever seen a Donkey Kong Fistful full of quarters? Like that's what it was. Yeah. It was like everybody yeah. Kind of like, like like we got we got a high score alert, but for Super Mario Three, it's like we have a Bowser final level alert. <laughs>
1: like whatever that video game movie was with Fred Savage, where the he's wizard. Playing, yeah, there you go. It was like that, where you got the stadium, and everybody's like, "Go, go!" Yeah, that was kind of like that. I will never forget that.
2: And then you made your entrance, like, crossfire, a little gun game from the
1: 90s. If there, if there was such a thing as a mic drop for a controller back then, I would have done that. I would have just stood up and dropped the controller like, that's right, bitch.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, that was just some of our finals memories. I think another finals memory for me, of course, was playing GoldenEye with four players, multiplayer. And we all used paintball guns. We played a game of, like, virtual paintball, which was fun. Nice. Let's talk about... Our most depressing times playing video games. (laughs) And seeing how you made that noise, I'll have you go first.
1: Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles.
2: The first game for NES.
1: Yeah, I think it was called Manhattan Project. Let me tell you what. That friggin' underwater level with the electrified vines where you had to defuse the bombs. I, I made it past it. I'm one of the few in the world that can say yes... I made it past that level, but that man, how many times I died at that thing, or how many times I ran out of time just trying to get the, that I, to me, that is easily one of the hardest levels ever in the history of video games. And if you don't think so, shut up, because it was one of the hardest ever to complete. And if you're not old enough, screw you, you need to go back and play it.
2: For me, and we both know it's one of my favorite video game characters, of course, is Mega Man. Now, when I was growing up, my friend Joel at the time, you know, he had Super Nintendos, so he had all the Mega Man games, and we would just run through the gamut of all the, you know, the bots and stuff like that, and we would beat it. Well, this was a few weeks ago, so I'm, I'm on the PlayStation store, and they had this, you know, sale, so I'm like, oh, like $10 or whatever for the Mega Man Legacy Collection, which what it gives you is Mega Man 1 through, I think, 6 it is, or 1 through 5. And so I'm playing it. I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna gradually go through each game and beat each game. So I'll start off at one, make my way to the end. Jesus Christ, how yep. fucking hard those games are! You had like, me at Mega Man. <laughs> I forgot. And I mean, I I mean, if you want a game that will break you as both a child and as an adult, it would be Mega Man. Like I think, like people always talk about how Battletoads is hard. Battletoads is really difficult. But I think Mega Man. Is more difficult than Battletoads because it's just the Battletoads, you can at least get through half a level. Mega Man, yep. there are times where you can't even get through like the first screen pretty much because just the people, the, the way the bots are shooting stuff at you and getting hit, and nothing seems dodgeable pretty much. And you're no matter, even no matter how many times I'm playing this on my PS4, how many times I'm tapping, you know, triangle or square to shoot multiple rounds at them, they're still not dying, I'm still getting hit, I'm still dying. And, I mean, I don't rage quit often. It was more quitting out of, like, depression, like, this is how it ends. Like, this is how my yeah. love for Mega Man ends. And I just started playing Uncharted 4 afterwards. How many so times like, do
1: you jump in Mega Man and you, you hit the button and you think you hit it and you fall right
2: into the freaking hole and you go, but I hit the damn button! Or you hit, again, or you jump over, like, a projectile, and you're like, okay, could it? I cleared it, and I shot him two times. Next thing you know, the thing's still, like, right next to you, yep. and it runs into you, yep. and your life bar depletes, the and then you just start crying everywhere. Yep. And it's just, I mean, it was just a, a depressing, depressing moment. Also, a, a moment I had that was kind of sad, too, actually, was very frustrating, more than sad. Uh, going back to Mortal Kombat, Mortal Kombat 4, and having to play Goro, the computer is a trolling motherfucker in that yep. game. Because not only do your hits do like 1% to 2% damage on Goro if you just punch him or kick him or whatever, he will troll you by jumping up in the air and stomping on you multiple times. There's no way you can block him. And it's depressing and it's frustrating as hell. The cracks in the controllers are real, people.
1: It yeah. happens. And it's have been ever, happening for years.
2: Have you ever broken a controller before? Oh, have you ever yeah. been so, no, I mean, like, have you ever been so mad to where that just throwing, but like, snapping it in half?
1: I don't know if I've ever snapped one in half because I was never the snapper. I was the thrower and the pounder. I yeah. would put it on the ground and just wail. There were, I remember one time it was an a- NES controller, just putting it on the ground and wailing on it. And yeah. of course, you know, you regret it immediately after the fact, but.
2: Uh, that, yeah, that, oh, definitely. And can describe your sex life as well.
1: <laughs> I don't tell.
2: <laughs> well, we all hope that you had a great National Video Game Day, but come up next. We have two new comics this week. So find out what they are. What we're reading is coming up next in the podcast. This is writer Paul Aller, and
1: you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
2: Well, Nerd, it's time we jump in those ambulances and pull out our long boxes and find out what we're reading this week. And, James, I speak of ambulances because. I went back to DC this week, and we were talking about this at SDCC, that one of the most interesting types of comics that have be coming out is, of course, Young Animal and, of course, Doom Patrol. So I decided, hey, let's do Doom Patrol Part 1 for me this week. And, of course, it's written by Gerard Way. Uh, The art is done by Nick Darrington. The color is done by Tamara Bonville, a good friend of ours. And I'll just say this, the art... Is the most understandable thing about this entire comic.
1: <laughs> <laughs> if you haven't read it yet, you don't know why that's funny. Go ahead. Yeah.
2: And so again, you know, the, the title of this book is "It's Doom Patrol Number One," and pretty much what this does is it follows a couple of people who are, you know, working in an ambulance. One's, of course, the medic. The other is a driver, and this follows Casey Brink. And the thing is with this. This is a big problem with this. A lot of the dialogue is so broken up, you don't know what's happening. It feels like a book that has, like, two, three stories that are really different from each other, and it felt like you read a book or saw a movie, but you only saw, like the last third of it, or, like, or you, and you missed all that introduction.
1: <laughs> Can I ask you something? Because I read this, too, because I did this. How many times... Did you actually have to flip back a page or two going, wait a minute, did I?
2: Right. Did I miss a page because or did I it's miss like, something? That's th- happened to me several times. Because one thing you're talking about is like you're talking about, oh, this Euro, it's like a, a different world and it's just, you know everything's in its place. The next thing you know, there's like these little beings, you don't know what the hell's going on. And it seems like this little world. It's like, so it's like, is it like Micronauts? Like we whatever there's like, there's beings inside of things. Like, is there like a cellular thing? What is the next thing you know, a prince has a brick thrown through his head, the homeless guy through, or some crazy dude through an abandoned building. We don't know how it gets there. This is a book that it's so disjointed in its writing it's really hard to progress through it. And one of the biggest problems a comic can have is when you're reading a book, and I mind you, I read all my comics digitally now, and when I'm looking at this book, I'm looking up and saying, okay, what page am I on out of how many? And I'm doing it repeatedly, okay, am I almost over? And, like, for example, the way that Way writes this you get to page 13, you think you're on page 32. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like You think that, okay, there's no way I've read more than just not even a half of this book or a quarter of this book. And it's just, everything in the story is just weird. You, you know, this you have this character that shoots something and it causes Casey's like, roommate, something happened to a roommate or whatever. And it's just, the entire time I was sitting here reading this, And I'm just scratching my head, like, did I miss something? And it's a problem. Now, I say this, the one thing I did like about this, and it's the best part of this, is the art. The colors are great. Tamara's colors are great. The art by Darrington is great. It's really, you know, clean and detailed and fun in a sense. But the writing, I don't know what the fuck is going on in this.
1: It's very, very, I mean, you almost get anxiety reading it. Yeah. Wait a minute, what the hell? just happened? Where am I? It's like being, it's like when you're driving somewhere and you know you're lost, but you think you see something familiar, but you drive a couple more miles and you realize you're still lost.
2: And not not only that, but I think that the thing, the the problem with the dialogue too is, is that it's kind of simple dialogue, but simple dialogue that has way too much depth behind the words that makes any sense. Like if you read a certain sentence, you're like, okay, I can get this. This is very simple. But then everything has a meaning behind it, but the meaning gets cloudy and it gets disjointed, and you don't know what it means, you know. And it's just, it's just really weird. They don't explain like how this one being makes it to Earth or whatever like that. They don't understand, and it's like there's no solid introduction. Again, this feels like as if you jumped into a book or a series. I'll say. Actually, this is a better way to, to say it. This is like jumping into a TV show, that's, but not starting at season one. This is, like, this is like watching like The Walking Dead, but jumping into like season four or season three instead of starting off at the beginning, pretty much.
1: Yeah, in, in a weird way, you're kind of right. But the thing to me about this book is, I don't think it, it's not that he, he can't write or that he's writing badly. I think he wrote it exactly the way he wanted to. And this is the way that he wanted the story to be structured. So I don't know who's more crazy, him or us.
2: I think it... You know? I I don't think that we're crazy. I think that it's just that this is what happens when a writer has too many ideas and tries to fit them all into one book instead of spanning them out over a certain series.
1: So you're saying it's Doom Patrol Zero Chill?
2: (laughs) Pretty much. Okay. This is pretty much what it is. Like I said, anytime you have a book where you read it and you feel like you're jumping into it and it's like... Oh, God. It's like watching Game of Thrones jumping in season three and wondering who everybody is and stuff like that. Uh, This is a drop for me, man. I I can't, I mean, not even the art can say this because, again, it comes down to the writing. The writing's just, it's weird and it's just disjointed and it's just not there.
1: Uh, I think that's fair enough.
2: So, what'd you do this week?
1: I actually decided to go back to our friends at Aftershock this week. And, of course, Animosity number 1 came out not too long ago. So I decided to go with Animosity number 2, written by Marguerite Bennett. The art is done by Raphael de la Torre. Rob Schwagner's the colors, and Marshall Dillon does the lettering. Now, since, you know, issue 1's already out, really no spoilers here. Basically, Animosity is a story about animals becoming, all of a sudden becoming, quote-unquote, aware. There's an awa- they call it an awakening. And all of a sudden, just, you know, flip of a switch, animals are aware of everything. They have minds. They can think. They can feel. They can talk. They're aware of everything. And they remember everything that they did. Like, there was in, there was, uh, in issue one, there was a panel where, um, and they showed different kinds of animals doing different kinds of things in this first issue. And there was a panel in the first issue that uh, it was a cat and it crawls up onto a man's uh, chest and says, if you ever fucking touch her again, I'm going to rip your eyes out while you sleep. So Talking about, like, spousal abuse,
2: I'm like, whoa! So pretty much this is a cat, and I know the reason why the cat did it is because of spousal abuse, but this is, like, if you ever thought there was a world where cats could be even bigger dicks... Like, yeah. this is that world.
1: I know that there I know, there are some wonderful cats in this world, but there are also some not-so-nice cats. So, yeah, it was just really weird, and you're talking about, like, a polar bear attacks a seal and says, Oh, God, what have I done, kind of thing. It's like, this is weird. So, basically, you're following a family, uh, and the, the little girl's basically the one that you want to follow, which is Jessie and her dog, Sander. Now, one of the really touching moments in the first issue, instead of seeing an animal attacking humans, which is happening a lot in the first issue... The dog goes up to the girl, little girl and says, I love you. I really love you. She hugs him kind of thing. And it's this—it's a really sweet, touching moment and a very intense story. But you keep following them into issue two. And we're starting to get post-apocalyptic now because the animal population, they feel like they should be treated the same as humans now. And humans are talking about human rights in the Bible. There's a lot of Bible stuff in this story talking about whether or not humans have domain over animals and stuff like that. So now you're starting to see um, like in any post-apocalyptic story, how there's like trading posts and markets and stuff. So you've got like rats selling antidepressants <laughs> and, 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 and then, stuff then, like that. And then like in
2: the middle of squares square is Bob Barker crucified.
1: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's no spading. Actually, the whole spading or neutering thing is actually kind of part of this story too. That's part <laughs> of the negotiation between the humans and the uh, and the animals. I don't want to give too much away in the second issue. But remember when we were talking about revolution, Right. And I still don't want to spoil this because, you know, I still want to give people a chance to read it. Revolution, I mean. How Rom did something that was a game changer and you can't go back. Right. Something happens in this book that is a game changer and you can't go back. Very, very similar to that. And let's just say that something that you see early on in issue two where you're like, I better keep an eye on this guy. It has to do with that character and something goes down and you think you're at the end of the book but then you see the last couple pages and you go, "Oh man, what happened?"
2: And that's the thing about how I think good series are that they have an idea of what they want to do and they pretty much make it to where a certain character might do something and then that's a game changer. And I like when they introduce those so early on. And I like when the game changers themselves aren't anything so, like, they'll catch you off guard, but they won't get to the point where you're going to be like, sit there and go, well, that was dumb.
1: It's it's game-changing and heartbreaking at the same time. Right. There's a lot of heartbreaking stuff in this book. As an animal lover, there were parts of it where that were actually kind of hard for me to read because I didn't want it to happen, but I knew it was going to happen, so it was that emotion that was coming through there. And Marguerite Bennett just does a fantastic job. It's structuring this story and, and and the way that, you know, you know, you wonder what animals would feel like if that suddenly happened and what and how they would feel about us or some of the things right. that they see us do. And she paints that picture beautifully in the relationship between Sandra and Jesse, the little girl. Is really really great. So even this, so this, even though this book's a little intense for me, it's definitely hard for me to read it. Being an animal lover, and they're, if you're an animal lover, there might be a little bit difficult for you at times too. It's still a pull for me because of just how, and the art is really good. I don't want to skip over the art. It was it was really really detailed, and AfterShock always does a pretty good job with their art and their books. So I commend them for that. But this is definitely a pull for me, even though it can be a little bit difficult to read. The story is just so, structured so well, and it's such a different take on a post-apocalyptic or a uh, dystopian society type thing that I, I think it's it's worth putting in your pull box, man.
2: Well, there you go. If you're a pet lover, if you're an animal lover, then this book is for you. But that's going to do it for what we're reading this week. Come up next. Spots kicking off its second season. And guess what? We're going to be talking about the season two premiere. That's coming up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is comic book illustrator Dietrich Smith, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
1: Well, if you listened to our review of fall TV shows last year, you know that this is a show that we thought really ended on a high note, so we were really looking forward to the Season 2 premiere of Blind Spot on NBC, which, of course, premiered this past Wednesday. This is going to be a spoiler-filled review, by the way, so just keep that in mind as you go forward here. And, Nick, they ended with a bang,
2: and they started with one as well. Well, it started with more than the bang, really. It started with pretty much an interesting revelation. Of course, we found out that... Well, let's just say Taylor Shaw is not Jane Doe. And this whole thing with the first season, the way that it ended, man, you want to talk about tension-filled? Yeah. And, and, and a great cliffhanger? Wow. Yeah. And they delivered in the beginning of this episode. They, this whole premiere was great.
1: Yeah, and the fact that, I mean, when you first see Jane, obviously one of the most compelling parts about the finale was, again, spoiler-filled, when uh, Weller arrests her. And there's that huge tension there and then you see the aftermath and apparently Jane was taken at that point. That was one thing you find out at the beginning of the premiere is that she was taken somewhere else and bad things happened. She was taken, she to, was a, taken.
2: She was taken to a CIA black site. Mm-hmm. And, and you, you know what happens so? yeah. there.
1: <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So, and then we come to find out, you know, Jane is jane and obviously she gets out of that and when we watched this together i know that you and i kind of looked at each other the second that jane and weller started to throw down and fight we're like oh it's
2: on now oh exactly man i mean whenever you have that moment of like oh my god he's going alone and he's gonna throw down with her it's like again that's what's a great part of of Martin Garrow's writing is just knowing when to allow the water to boil over and just how much yeah. of it you want of it to boil over. I mean, that first confrontation they had in the season is just perfect. Uh, also, I think that even in the beginning when they were kind of teasing, there's a little bit of a chase scene, and they were kind of teasing something like, oh, they're doing something's happening, it has to involve Jane, and you find out not so much, and then you find out like what the – team has been up to since Mm -hmm. the whole Jane thing fell through in season one. And I gotta say, man, Sullivan motherfucking Stapleton. Yeah. Dude, that guy should win an Emmy or at least be nominated. Just his portrayal of Weller is fantastic. Whenever he's on whenever he's on the screen, he gets through the glass. He, He you know... Makes it to where, like, you feel like you're there, you feel like you're in these tension-filled situations and stuff like that. And just the thing that they do with Jane, something that you find out about Jane is amazing in this first episode of the second season.
1: Not only that, but the people that are surrounding Jane and the people that are part of this group that she was with. You find out who put her in Times Square... In the first place, who dropped off the bag? We find that. Should we, should we, should we spoil it? Should we let it go? Or do we, no, or let, it's not let's, one of those things that we'll let, let, let lie. It.
2: No, let it, let it, let it, uh, let's pull a walking dead and not know okay. what happens. All
1: right, well, we'll let that one lie. Well, let's just say that that person becomes a very big focal point of this episode. And there's one person that Jane wants to see more than anybody, which is at the top of this organization, and that's a character named Shepherd. Mm -hmm. Won't say Shepherd's role either because it kind of ties in there a little bit. So won't won't really spoil that. But one of the things that I loved, and and you talk about the tension and knowing when to pull back, is when we see Jane back with the team for the first time, and a lot of the tension surrounds what happened with Mayfair in the season finale, and how everybody views. Everybody seems to view Jane differently, and that's it's very interesting
2: yeah and i like that and again one of the many strengths of this show especially kicking off the second season is its writing and what happens with a lot of these shows as they transition season to season is the fact that they kind of let what happened in the first season they kind of let these loose ends lie Mm -hmm. whereas with this they don't there are a lot of things that are top and some things that are brought back from the first season they're brought back in a way where you're kind of like, oh, yeah, that's right, that happened. And it's kind of a nice refresher, other than just, you know, I mean, a lot of these shows in the second season, they go on, say, you know, previously in the last season of whatever show, they do do some nice callbacks to the first season, and it makes you appreciate the writing even more. And again, this whole onion that is Jane Doe gets peeled back a little bit by layer by layer. But then one thing about this show that's great is you find out that within those layers... Or more layers.
1: Yep. Once you find out who she actually is, and we find that out in this episode, again, yeah. not something that we want to drop for you right now, you find out who she is, and then like you said, the layers start to get peeled back, and you think, okay, we're finally going to get to the core, you don't, but it's such a beautiful thing to kind of guide you through the rest of the season. And then let's not forget Archie Punjabi's character yeah, who's the head of the NSA. So here's another character where you're going, okay, what side is she really on? What's her motives? Because you kind of get a back and forth kind of feel with her.
2: And what I love about the whole CIA, NSA development that's going to be happening in the season is this, I think, is going to be a season where we find out just how important Mayfair really was. Yeah, And, of course, we all know in season one she gets shot. And she dies. And here's the thing. Mayfair was the person who, you know how the expression is, you know, you squeeze toothpaste out of a tube and you can't get it back in, which somehow she was miraculously able to get it back in the tube. Mm-hmm. Now there's really, now you have this you know, guy, I can't even his name, but he was he's now pretty much in her spot right now. We saw him in season one.
1: I know who you're talking about. Yeah, I can't think of his name off yeah, my head either. But
2: he seems like the kind of guy where he's more of the idea of he doesn't want to put the toothpaste back in the tube. I think he's going to be more of the guy where if it gets out, he's going to be like, I did not have anything to do with this. I'm going to step back. I think he's going to be less of a fighter for, I think, the team than Mayfair was, and that's going to be found out. I think there's going to be some tensions between he and the crew as well and everybody else in that.
1: Right, and there's a whole, you know, we're shutting it down kind of aspect to it, but then, you know, here comes the NSA and, that's when things start to get very, very complicated, and I think that that's kind of where we're left off in this in this first episode is that you, you, it just opens up a whole entirely new can of worms. You always wonder from season to season, like you were saying, it's like okay, I had a good first season. Where are they going to go in the second season? And it's there. This show, I think, more than a lot of other shows out there that are going into the into their next season, has such a clear path. Right. Of where they're gonna go. But the great thing is is that you have no idea how it's going to come out. And you still don't really know who the good guys and the bad guys are.
2: Right. And that's one thing I like about this show too is that this is a, a show, a series that deals with many branches of the government and you know investigative agencies. So like last year we had tension between the FBI and CAA. Now this year we have the NSA. And the CIA going it looks to be going a little toe to toe here, if you will. So, was this like every season we're going to have like, a new branch of the government kind of like stepped? Was it going to be like what's the next? One, next season going to be like Coast Guard versus Home, the FBI? Yeah, you know, Homeland
1: Security going to
2: get involved.
1: In all <laughs> kinds of stuff, man. And, I, and we haven't seen the president yet either, right? We have not had no. a president on the show yet, right?
2: No, we have not.
1: Okay, well then, at some point, you'd have to think that that's going to become a factor. Maybe not this season, but certainly down the road. But what I love about this is that. You, you clearly see that the future is bright for this show, and that even beyond this season, no matter what happens, you know that they're going to be okay and have interesting stories going forward in, in, in season three and beyond, I think, if they want to.
2: If Bernie, if Bernie Sanders was able to become president, he'd be coming down there in the elevator. No, the information between the FBI has and the CIA, and the CIA is totally unbalanced. The CIA has the top... 99% of the information. The FBI is left with that 1%. We need to make it even. And I want to
1: stop talking about Jane's
2: emails. <laughs> no, he's a damn. I was t- Nobody gives a damn about Jay's tattoos. They
1: really- <laughs> oh man, but it's it's just such a good show. And and do we even really need to give a rating here? I mean, I mean,
2: we we pretty much know they're both gonna be tens across the board. So I mean,
1: and this is not posturing, man. It's just no, you haven't jumped on this show yet. I mean, you you've still got time to catch up with season one. Of course, we're gonna have Blind Spot. That's gonna go to its regular time slot at eight o'clock on Wednesdays on NBC, so keep that in mind as you're heading in. And, you know, we could have preemptions because of presidential debates and political stuff as we go towards the election as well, so keep that in mind. So make sure you're always checking your listings and stuff to find out when your shows are going to be on once that stuff starts.
2: And, you know, one thing before we go to the next segment, dude, I want to ask you, they moved this from Monday to Wednesday. How do you feel about that?
1: I think that it's a ballsy move, putting it up against Arrow, but... Remember we talked about Arrow last year. If there's any season where Arrow is now vulnerable, it's this season coming off of a week last season. So when you've got Arrow now going head-to-head with Blindspot, obviously NBC moved it for a reason. They think there's an opportunity there to draw some eyes away from the CW. And I think that they might do it. Well, i will be very interested to see how that's going to go down.
2: And that's going to do it for our review of the Season 2 premiere of Blind Spot on NBC. Remember, be sure to catch that Wednesdays at 8 p.m. But coming up next, Stan Lee. Yes, Excelsior himself. Might be having his own secret service soon. This is
1: comic book writer Brian Wood, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
2: Well, folks, time to grab your shades and grow out your mustaches, because we're going around the interwebs and seeing what's trending. Because James, it's time for what? Nerd Nerd News! news. And our first story deals with the one and only mustached one, the sunglasses wearing, Stan Lee.
1: I'll tell you what, this is uh, some kind of Excelsior, let me tell you right now, because apparently Fox, 20th Century Fox, has acquired the rights, the life rights, to Stan Lee, and they want to make a 70 set action-adventure movie with Stan as the main character. Now, there's got to be a million different thoughts that run through your head when you hear something like this.
2: Yeah, imagine just like on the post, you're just going to see 007 Excelsior.
1: Yeah, I mean, and they say it's going to be kind of like a... Kingsman Secret Service with a Roger Moore, James Bond kind of feel.
2: So Proge is not going to be a serious film. According proportion. to
1: this report by The Hollywood Reporter, no, it doesn't seem like it's going to be a serious movie at all. I was wondering, when I first saw about about this, I was like, well, maybe it's going to be like a Mel Brooks, spaceballish type right. spoof type thing. No, I think that they're taking themselves seriously, but not that seriously. <sighs>
2: I don't know what to expect of this. I mean, you have, of course, the people who are behind Twilight, the Maze Runner, and the new Power Rangers uh, behind, of course, I'm talking about the producers, Marty Bowen and White Godfrey who are attached to this project. So it's interesting. Is it like, you know, Stan Lee is going to be fawning, fighting over this gr- a girl or whoever, and then he has, like, Steve Ditko or, like, you know, somebody from, like, DC's old time to kind of do battle like, in a Twilight sense? I don't know.
1: It's hard to say, man. I mean, I, I just hope it's fun. I hope that the whole point of this... At for it to be fun, but I don't see the words comedy in there anywhere. I, I see just, action adventure. Yeah. And I go, ah, oh, this isn't like bad boys with S- Stan Lee. The- <laughs> Stan Lee's angels. <laughs> yeah, I mean,
2: actually, that would work. <laughs> would yeah. it? Where he's kind of like, where, where, where Stan Lee Charlie? is Charlie? Yeah. That would be hilarious. Or who, even okay. Bosley. Oh, yeah, well, wait, wait, wait. Well, okay, so if Stanley is going to be the Charlie, who would the Bosley be?
1: Oh, that's tough.
2: That's the, well, that's if, the it's, if
1: it's set in the 70s or now?
2: 70s. Going like as if it's going to oh, be set like in the movie.
1: Man. If if I'm if I'm casting a Bosley yeah. for a 70s movie, what, Clark Gregg?
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> sure. <laughs> You'd have to grow a mustache, but hey.
2: Yeah, but I mean, it's just, I don't know, man. It's pretty interesting to wonder what they would do with this. I mean, we'll see. What happens? I don't think this is going to be a movie that's going to be coming out for, like, I think five years minimum. This gonna be a movie that never comes out. Let's be honest Probably. Really quickly, I want to talk about this. It is weird, though, that this isn't something that Disney's going to be doing or Marvel themselves. It's going to be Fox, and I wonder why.
1: Well, I mean, Fox does have some Marvel rights, so it's not completely out there. But at the same time, how do we know that Disney didn't see this idea and go, you guys want a what? Right. <laughs> you know? So that's that's a possibility, too. Mickey's just saying, like, ah, fuck, no! <laughs> I'm not putting my reputation on the line, huh?
2: <laughs> and I then put, you got Goofy in the corner going, well, I'd do it. Of course, I'd tell you what, Mickey. That sounds like a decent plan. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you something, Goofy. I put my red shorts on one leg at a time. Will I do it? I make billion-dollar movies.
1: Oh man! I just...
2: Oh my god! I uh, really want to see like a Mickey Mouse Bruce Dickinson like skit or film or something.
1: Or put it, put them in the pitch room and see what happens.
2: <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you know, some you know somewhere, Pooh's just sitting in the corner going, "Oh bother." He's just, something, <laughs> you know. But it, it's interesting to say this, but something that's really frustrating. Marvel lately is, every time lately, whether it's Secret Wars and now Civil War 2, they can never end it on time. No,
1: it's very frustrating. As a matter of fact, now we've got a story that came out courtesy of Newsarama that Civil War 2, not going to be ending until the end of this year, so that means issue 8 is actually going to come out reportedly now, reportedly, on December the 28th so first of all you're putting it the week after christmas because how many people are going to pick up their poll right the
2: week after christmas
1: second of all why, well, why? Not only that,
2: well not only that but that is an eight week this is you know difference from when it's okay issue eight is going to be november 2nd that was the original release date now i was saying you know what eight weeks later we're going to be releasing issue eight, and then the so the issues are as a stand, as you mentioned, December twenty eighth, uh, November thirtieth, October twenty sixth, and then issue five will come out September twenty first. So uh, I don't get it, man. Like what? Like, and you know what's weird about this is that nobody's really calling Marvel out on this.
1: No, and I mean we're not dicks, okay? I know no. that Bendis said that David Marquez, who's the writer. I mean, who's the artist on this? is taking some time off for the birth of a child, I get it, okay? I totally get it. But at the same time, babies cook for nine months, people. You know, and I'm not saying that he should have worked harder or anything like that. I'm not calling David Marquez out. This is not David Marquez's fault, okay? What I'm saying is is that you got to know this is coming.
2: Well, not only that, but, um, again, I'm not taking shots at him, but deadlines are deadlines. Like, whether you're a journalist or in comic books... You can't really push them back in a certain sense. I mean, you can, but not eight weeks. You know what I'm saying? Right. Uh,
1: And, yeah, and I I mean, hey, when my kid was born, I took two weeks off of this show. Right. So I'm not saying that people shouldn't do that. As a matter of fact, I think people absolutely should do that. And, again, I don't think this is Marquez's fault at all. No. If anything, it's Marvel's fault for not you know, looking ahead a little bit, knowing right. that in nine months this guy's going to have a well, baby and he's that. probably going to want to take some time off. Well,
2: well, not just that. I think, and again, this isn't Marquez's fault, Marvel should have known, hey, this guy's wife is pregnant or he's about to have a child. We need to have a back an artist as a backup, like a break in case of pregnant birth you know, thing. And they do. And that's the thing. Like, hey, let different artists take over for a couple of issues or whatever, you know, and, and stuff like that. So... But that's the thing, is that they didn't, Marvel didn't plan ahead. and That's something that they seem to not able to do properly. And listen, we don't want to come on the show every week and bash Marvel. That's not what we want to do. But when publishers mess up this badly, we have to put them on, on blast. We have to make this front and center.
1: You know what's funny? And I know that we don't like doing this on the show, but because people are going to be upset about us talking about this, and for something that you actually said about having an artist on backup, how much did DC get blasted by the nerd media and fans for having an artist take over on an issue of a rebirth run, right. like a fourth issue or a fifth issue? Okay, well, this artist is going to do this one, and then the original artist is going to come back for this or, one. Or, or... But, but nobody's calling Marvel out for this?
2: Right. Or, and here's the thing, too... Going back to DC, what happened, what's one of our favorite DC things recently? Uh, Batman Robin Eternal, Batman Eternal, those two runs. Well, every week you had new artists. It seemed so like it anyway, yeah. Yeah, so that's over 50, 52 issues. This is a crossover, so why couldn't you have like an idea of like, okay, let's have this kind of a backup plan to where if this thing happens, where this guy has to take off time for the birth of this child, which again... Is something you should get time off for? Whether you're a man, and especially if you're a woman, you you know why can't we just have somebody like in the back, like say, hey, this guy's gonna do like the first four issues, you're gonna do the last four or whatever, or like give, that. Just
1: give the guy help. Yeah, you know, give him some An help. Have, another, have Have you know somebody pencils and inks. You know, I mean, I know that 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 takes a lot of time, right? And I I understand that too. But I mean, come on. And if they didn't have 60,000 tie-ins for Civil War, and that's maybe an they'd be too. able to have that back.
2: And that's another problem, too, is when you have all of these crossovers, tie-ins really aren't necessary. They really aren't. That's, I think, something that DC did, you know, right in a sense. Now, you've read uh... What was it, Convergence was the, was the latest DC yeah. 1 before Rebirth?
1: Yeah, pretty much. They didn't have
2: a lot of tie into that, really. I mean, really.
1: they did, but the thing about but the Convergence... They were, centers, small. they were They were two issues each. Right. And they really kind of tied directly into the story, for the most part. And, and not only that, you had this... It was like cause Secret Wars was out around the same time. So you had all these different dimensions in battle worlds, and remember, Telos was pitting... The dimensions against each other is like, hey, you guys fight it out, and whoever survives is going to be the winner right. kind of the thing. So you wanted to see those battles that they put together. So in that sense, it's fine. But, you know, we probably wouldn't even be talking about this, as a matter of fact, if not for the fact that Marvel did the same exact thing. With Secret Wars. With Secret Wars.
2: They did the same thing with Secret Wars that recently came out before Civil War II. They had this nice little thing planned. It's going to end on this date, and I'm getting pushed back way, way, way back. And this is another problem with Marvel, too, is because, you know, I grew grew up on Marvel. It's well-known. I'm a Marvel fan. But I'm not digging Marvel lately. No. I'm not digging a lot of the comics that they're putting out. A lot of it is really average to, sorry, below average storytelling. There's not really anything new that grabs your attention. And my thing is, you have Marvel now getting ready to launch, was it next month? Who knows now? Right, and how is that going to interfere? So if you have events from Civil War II still playing through, but yet Marvel now stuff is ready to go out and it's post-Civil War II stuff, that's going to ruin this big crossover right? planned.
1: And, and again, this same thing happened with Secret Wars. Secret Wars wasn't over the runs came out that were supposed to come out after Secret Wars, before the end of Secret Wars, and it screwed everything up. I'm sure some people don't feel that way, but it did. And now the same thing is probably going to happen again.
2: Yeah, but you know something that's going to be happening in a couple of weeks, actually, is a big, big threat, pretty much. It's going to be coming to Ubisoft in the forms of Vivendi because in its 30-year history, they're actually having a an annual shareholders meeting, as a lot of, actually all companies mostly do, that are traded and stuff like that. And they're going to be electing a board of directors, which could possibly take over and open the door for Vivendi to come in and buy Ubisoft. They will no longer be independent. That's scary.
1: Yeah, and I mean, this would be a hostile takeover, by the way. If you're not familiar with the corporate world, that is what a hostile takeover sounds like. I mean, when Polygon put out the story at first, I was thinking, Ah, oh, what? Yeah, this doesn't seem like a big deal. And then the more you read about it, the more it's like, whoa! This is a huge. This is a huge deal. As a matter of fact, Ubisoft's been independent for what thirty years or something. Th- their, like that? their
2: entire thirty-year history, they've been an independent uh, publisher.
1: And Vivendi's already bought a little bit of a piece there from the family that originally started Ubisoft in the first
2: place. About, I think, I believe They believe it's twenty percent. They've they've yeah. bought. And this is thing too is because Vivendi, I believe, also acquired a while back blizzard i believe and blizzard pretty much saved themselves because i believe they had paid like and i could be wrong on this but i believe they paid like six billion or something like that i think or,
1: that was in 2013 i think yeah that, because they, they, there was like a 20 percent stake or something like that something I think like that
2: and then they paid them an absorbingly amount of large amount of money to become independent again
1: yeah, well, I mean, when you're talking about, I mean, we're talking about millions and millions of shares.
2: As That we're talking about jobs. Like yeah. this, like Ubisoft is a company that has many different studios. I mean, they're based over in France, but they have different studios around the world. So this is going to affect every single studio.
1: Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's going to be difficult. It di- it's difficult to stop stuff like this, especially if you kind of feel like you're on the ropes, and you never really know what investors are going to do because. Whether you like it or not, and depending on what kind of a job you work in, there's a separation between the people that don't do what you do every day and the people that are in the boardrooms in a lot of instances. These people don't know how their workers toil away on a day-to-day basis. So their vision for what they think is best for the company, in this case Ubisoft, might not necessarily be what's in the best interest for Ubisoft.
2: And, of course, there's a website that they launched, Ubisoft, I believe, did. It's called WeLoveUbisoft.com. Uh, it has you know pictures of developers and people who work there and just some stories and stuff like that. So, I mean, be sure to go check that out if you want to go uh, raise some support and possible awareness uh, for this. Yeah, and, and if you
1: think they're going to keep everybody, you're out of your right,
2: mind. Right, right, and they're not. And that's the thing is that, you know, again, Vivendi, this is something that, you know, in business you don't want. You don't want this whole monopoly of things where they – eat up and gobble up these, these tech companies, these other types of companies. Mm-hmm. And and again, creativity is at its best when it's put in the hands of fewer people. Like, for example, with us, it's, it's just James and I here. And when we do get to the point where we're, I mean, we're big, but I mean, when we get to the point where we're like huge, we're not going to have a board of directors and stuff like that. It's like you want to be in there and let people know that, You know, management is here, but it's also, in a sense, on the same level as the employees. Mm -hmm. And and just, you know, it's transparency is what it is. You want to have a level of transparency within a company. And I think that if Evendy takes over, you're not going to have that. And a lot of people are, you know, when it comes to the games, people are, you know, kind of piling on Ubisoft for certain things and stuff like that. Like, listen, we all understand Assassin's Creed Unity was a hunk of garbage. We understand that. But... The, but if you want to have certain storytelling, like for honor, and always, you know, to, to be able What do we say about when we do E3 every year? One of our favorite panels is Ubisoft because of just the joy and the the, the happiness yeah. that you see from the devs Chuck when they out, walk should out Yeah,
1: you Tyler out there and you've got something.
2: Right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Get her <laughs> and, out of there and it's, it's perfect almost.
2: Right. And, and, you know, and that's just one of those things is that when you see this, it, it again it just sets a shockwave and it could you know greatly affect to a certain extent the video game world
1: yeah and be very careful because ubisoft might not be the only one i mean this could this could send ripple effects it's like hey if this company can do this what's to stop them from going after say a square enix or something right. like that you know you, you don't know how far this is going to reach and if you want giant corporations or, owning your video games it's not necessarily good or though.
2: Let's bring up this. One of our favorite things that we were talking about was, uh, you know, Yarny and and Unraveled. What if they went to and got Coldwood Studios? Like yeah. a studio that's like six people. Yeah. Like that's scary.
1: Very.
2: That's very, very scary. But something that's not scary, though, of course, is the National Toy Hall of Fame when they announced their finalists entry into museums was actually of course on Tuesday now the nominees will include bubble wrap <laughs> well I mean hey just stop
1: right there <laughs> it's not untrue at it's all not. but think about that for a second a packing material right is being nominated for the toy hall of fame think about that next time you go to UPS or something
2: right it's just it's, it's, it's insane also care bears Clue, Coloring Books, Dungeons & Dragons... Fisher-Price, Little People, Nerf, Pinball, yes. Yep. <laughs> Rock'em Sock'em Robots. I'm so glad that the Rock'em Sock'em Robots actually got over that match-throwing scandal that rocked yep, the uh, yep. Rock'em Sock'em World.
1: Don't forget that uh, Octane scandal, too, with the oils and the different grains. I know. I mean, man, that, that could
2: have been ugly. It could have been bad, man. And, you know, the red you know, Rock'em Sock'em Robot was, you know, padding his gloves. That's why yep. the blue one always went up first. Can't have that. his head, yep. Uh, of course, uh, the Swing... Transformers and Uno.
1: Now, the reason we're talking about this not only because we all love toys, but because I mean, hey, look at the nerd stuff that's in there—you got yeah. D D, which is after Stranger Things, isn't D D pretty much a shoe in? I mean, I know they probably would have been anyway, right. but after Stranger Things, raising awareness of D D even more—I right. think that one's pretty much a shoe in.
2: Right, uh, Transformers, of course, and you know, of course, Rock'em and, and Robots, Care Bears. You know, and, and I'll throw Clue in there as well, because Clue is like, you had to think. You had to say, yep. you know, it's a big mystery. It's a murder mystery. It's interesting. So, I mean, what's your take on So when you see this list... Are you kind of like whenever you see these kind of nominations? Are you surprised at like, well, wait a minute, how they're already not in it yet? Like right, Dungeons exactly. and Dragons has been around for what, since the sixties or seventies or it's been something about, like that? It's a
1: long time. The man. Care Bears
2: been around since what the eighties? Like
1: Swing's been around since the dawn of time. Well, since you were born, <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. So I don't know how some of the. I mean, I don't. I can't. I can't imagine the bubble wrap is first ballot.
2: <laughs> bubble wrap's first match.
1: I mean, you're going to have to wait okay, until next year, so let's, bubble wrap.
2: So let's say, okay, I'm trying to think how I want to do this.
1: Hold on, wait a second, hold on, hold on. I don't want to cut you off, but I just looked at last year's inductees. Yeah. I did not see this until just now. Okay, so,
2: the cardboard box got in last year. Well, I mean, hey, if you've played Mel Your Solid, you know. It's wait, like, no, there's more. A stick
1: no now my son is in the other room probably going listen dad sticks <laughs> are awesome because that's all i love to play with
2: yeah <laughs> wow they're really going after that 19th what's that is what's next a hoop is that like <laughs> jacks like is that
1: i'm crying right now <laughs>
2: <laughs> we're gonna put it on the sidewalk for next
1: i didn't High see time. this this is you, a legitimate
2: reaction right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought. Well, well, I mean, well, I mean, you have you know we had we played stickball back in the day, so that's why the stick is in there. You, you know, it's just it's insane. Oh, like some of the things. Like what's next? Is it going to be like light up shoes are going to be the next thing, or you know, or or, or what? Because it's just, I don't know. It's 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 interesting to see what they consider boys and again it's like they're
1: not wrong though either no, I mean, they're, they're, not, serious, like, they're not wrong
2: no because you actually like i said you had stick ball, which of course was the very old version of the bat and right. stuff like that and so james here's what i want to do i want to look at this list of nominees i want you to each of us pick at least one or two of them and give a short two sentence acceptance speech or just at least what would they highlight in their acceptance speech okay so do you want first pick or let me go first
1: ah uh, let me see I will go first. Okay. Let me see. And I would go with the swing. Okay. Let's see. I think if I was swing, I would thank the millions and millions of children's butts that have sat on me over the years and enjoyed just going back and forth, <laughs> back and forth. And I know kids would so wrong. jump off of me all the time and, and hurt themselves, but I think that I've provided hours and hours of entertainment. That's-
2: that's just turn the swing into like a creepy uncle. Well, it's not the swing's fault. No, it's
1: what it does. You know, you just you sit on the swing <laughs> and you go back and forth. That is the that is the essence of swinging. <laughs>
2: oh god. Uh I I'll, I'll do Dungeons and Dragons. I'd like to of course thank basements for for being a thing. Thank you for uh being part uh, really the blueprint of people's imaginations i don't think that without i think without you a lot of guys wouldn't have that barrier when it comes to their mothers so i i thank you for that
1: Mom shoving the the food down the stairs with a stick just to make sure everything's okay you okay down there you dead no mom stop <laughs> we're a 14-hour right. quest. leave me alone god
2: all right so you have
1: so let's you- see I have... right, right. already know my
2: next one, so I, I, I want you to choose this your next one. I
1: don't know how I can't not go with Transformers.
2: All right, then do Transformers.
1: You know, I look back on all the transforming and the changing over the years, and it's been 30 years now, so it's very fitting to get into the Hall of Fame on your 30th anniversary, and I would just like to thank the evolution of the Transformers and the fact that from Dinobots to Autobots, children have been enjoying the Transformers for the past 30 years and love our movies too. Some of them. Thank you very much.
2: <laughs> right, I'm going to go with pinball. Ready? I want to thank the millions of people around the world who have gently caressed my buttons over the years. Uh, without you, I would have never known what the touch of another human or the human being would have felt like. I also want to thank the numerous amounts of balls that have touched my flippers over the years. Uh, You have been a joy in my life to be able to touch you and throw you into holes and get points for that. Just an honor. And to Bally and the people who have made me my brothers and sisters over the years, thank you for just loving pinball.
1: And let's bounce, bitches. (laughs)
2: That's going to do it for Neuro News. We hope you enjoyed our very creepy acceptance speeches when it comes to toys and what they would be like. But come up next. More Blind Spot. That's where we reviewed the Season 2 premiere, but now we're going to talk about it with a cast member, of course, talking about Audrey Esparza, who plays Zapata on the show. Stay tuned. More Down and Nerdy. Come up next.
0: Hi, this is Martin Garrow, creator and executive producer of Blind
2: Spot, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
1: Well, one of our most talked about, and I know, most exciting premieres that we had coming up for this fall TV season was *Blind Spot*. And so, hey, why not talk about it a little bit more? We've got Zapata herself on the line. It's Audrey Esparza. Audrey,
0: how you doing? Uh, I'm doing so well. I am walking the streets of New York. Um, so happy to talk to you guys. One day after the season premiere. Uh, it was
1: such a great premiere. But going back to season one for just a second, one of the things that I loved, and I know oh. Nick loved as well was that it wasn't just about Jane. Everyone kind of had their own part of the story. So how great was it to tell Zapata's story and watch it evolve across the season?
0: Oh, I mean, it's, it's been fantastic. I mean, when I get a script, I find myself just being a fan of the writing. So to be able to do it is such a plus. I just had a really good feeling after reading the pilot that our creator Martin Garrow was a great storyteller and knew how to develop characters my gut said that tasha would be further developed and then to be able to have that happen and come into fruition was um, really exciting
2: and I like that you mentioned you know your the way you've handle scripts and when you're given them and, and just your take on it and a very powerful episode since we we're talking about last season uh was episode 14 which involved your character going undercover in a human trafficking ring what was your initial reaction to the script for that episode And what was your approach like when you're going into filming
0: honestly after i read the script i, I called martin and mm-hmm. i just thanked him and i i felt like um this particular, like I had a certain amount of responsibility with this particular storyline. One, because I'm, t- we're talk- I'm talking about Hispanic women, I'm a Latina. And secondly, we're talking about women who can't use their voices, whether it's a language barrier or they are being um, violated um, physically, emotionally, um, they're silenced. So be- to be able to tell that story helps a huge amount of responsibility. Um and I was grateful that we were telling it. In terms of prepping for it, I was really lucky that it was all on the page. You know, um Martin and our team of writers sets an actor up so nicely. If you it's kind of like a paint by numbers thing working on the show. If you do what's there you'll be all right, you know? Right. Oh yeah. But I, I think I was gonna say but my, my favorite thing was you know, my girl Tasha got in a pretty brutal fight. Oh, which yeah. Was so much fun for me. Starting working on but I was a little nervous about the guns and the fighting. I, I come from a dance background. But as soon as I looked at it like choreography, it was so much fun. And so um, a lot easier than I thought. It just fit my body really nicely. Um, our um, fight choreographer and stunt coordinators are really good at their
1: jobs. Yeah, that seems pretty obvious based on the fighting that we've seen. As a matter of fact, speaking of things that are obvious as we head into the premiere for season two. Now we definitely see trust issues when it comes to Jane, but not just that, because now we have the head of the NSA involved, which who's played by Archie Punjabi. Now given the team's experience with other government agencies, how difficult is it going to be to gauge her true motives? Well,
0: in true blind spot fashion, that's 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 all of it. You know, where 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 do everybody's allegiance lie is um, kind of the name of the game in season two. Um, having somebody from the NFA, first of all, can I just give a huge shout out to Archie Kanjavi? We have the best time with that woman on set. She is fun and smart and professional, and I learned so much watching her. But in terms of the team. Yeah, she has, this is what I can say about that character. I can't say too much, but I, I can say that she does, um, like Archie, she kind of fits in fairly quickly. Um, and whatever happens after that, the audience is just going to have to wait and find out.
2: And I like that you talk about, you know, the bonds and relationships in the show and stuff like that. And, you know, this season is pretty much built on that whole trust factor. And one of the bonds I love the most on the show is one between Zapata and Reed as it's very much like a brother and sister. What to you sets their relationship, not only apart from the others on the show, but makes it so interesting.
0: One of my favorite things about, um, working on this show is, um, it sounds so cheesy. I, I'm really not that cheesy, I swear. Um, it's the people that I work with. The cast is really amazing, and I've made really great friends on the show. And it goes without saying that Rob Brown has become one of my closest friends, and that shorthand that Tasha has with Reed have with Rob. We just kind of quickly get on the same page. We can look at a scene, break it down, make some very quick points to each other and just trust um, whatever we're doing going forward. There is an incredible storyline coming up um, involving Tasha and Reed kind of taking off from Reed's point of view. And um, I I just have to say Rob Brown is going to do an incredible job this year, is doing an incredible job this year. And I can't, I can't wait for audiences to see what he's up to. And um, I feel pretty privileged to be along for the ride.
1: We're definitely looking forward to that. Blind Spot moves to its new time on Wednesday nights on NBC at 8 p.m. We're talking to Audrey Esparza, of course, who plays Zapata now. One scene that we can't forget <laughs> was something that Zapata does to Jane as she's getting ready to go undercover. Uh-huh. And she was all yes. too willing to do it. So, talk about that scene a little bit, and why she made the decision to step up, and so quickly, by the way.
0: Sure. I mean, I read, I, I read it, and I was like, "Oh, damn." <laughs> 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 Uh, what what happens is um, Jane is going undercover with the FBI. Can I talk about this? Is this cool? Has everybody seen this show?
1: I think it's already aired, so I think I think we're good. So hey, just okay, in case, we're all good. spoiler warning, just in case. Spoiler.
0: Uh, spoiler. Jane goes undercover or needs to go undercover to rejoin Sandstorm, which is the team that her and Oscar are from. She she's worried that she's not she doesn't look injured enough to be believable, and is basically asking somebody to shoot her there's um a back and forth with the team and tasha stands up and um fucking shoots her (laughs) 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 that goes perfectly with the face that
1: she makes what i
0: can say from reading it was she asked for it both figuratively and literally listen um Tasha is uh, an FBI agent, tried and true, but um, she also feels that James is very responsible for Mayfair's death. So I don't know if you want if if you get a chance to willingly if if somebody you don't like is asking you to punch him in the face. Tasha's the kind of girl that would take the punch. So she did.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that you you were making
0: when you shot her? Like, that was just like, yeah. we, James,
2: I looked at each other we were watching the the, the season two premiere, and we're like,
0: oh, my God. <laughs> 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 um, I've never felt so cool in my life, I have to say. Really, really cool. <laughs> that, was, that was a
2: true badass moment for you, I will say that. was saying before last season premiered, we actually had Martin Giro on the podcast. He talked about how the show was being filmed, entirely on location in New York City. So what's it like working with a showrunner like Martin who is dedicated to making a show like Blind Spot look look and feel so authentic?
0: Oh, my God. I can't, I can't say enough good things about Martin, not because he's my boss, not because he helped save me, but uh, Martin is somebody who I admire as an artist and um, have grown to really love as a friend. Martin wants the best for the show, and what's great about working with somebody like Martin is that he is confident enough as a boss to let the people he hired do what they do best. Um, Martin surrounds himself with people that are good at their job and takes a step back and lets them do that. I haven't always had that experience, and... um, Working with Martin has been that, and it's it's going to be really hard to have anything other than that, I have to say.
1: Yeah, he's definitely a great guy. And speaking of working with people, you work with a new cast member this year, Luke Mitchell, who's kind of played a few characters in the past that have had special powers. So we can't help but wonder, if Zapata suddenly became a superhero, what powers would she have?
0: Oh, my God. What would Tasha want to do? If Tasha was a superhero... Oh man, I'm just gonna get real dark. I just do it. <laughs> if Posh it. were I wouldn't do it. If Posh were a superhero, she'd probably be able to sleep a little bit better at night. That's all. <laughs> Sorry. The
1: powers of Rip Van Winkle.
0: <laughs> yeah, the, the, the power the powers of erasing things you've seen, I think, would would serve this character pretty well. <laughs>
2: And uh, Audrey, before we get you out of here, without spoiling anything, how will season two of Blind Spot raise the bar set by its first season? And what can viewers expect to see as we progress into the second episode and throughout the season?
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't. I could. Listen, I can be a little bit superstitious and I don't want to jinx anything. But from what I've read, it's going to be an unbelievable season. And. I don't want to jinx it. I'm, I'm not going I'm not, I'm not to say it's going to be better than the first one, but I'm kind of thinking it. So, whatever. <laughs>
1: well, I don't think you're the only one that's thinking it. And as a matter of fact, we're excited to see Blind Spot move to its new time, Wednesday night, 8 o'clock on NBC. We're so happy to talk to Zapata herself this week, Audrey Sparza. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, guys.
2: Well, James, just know that there's ever a time where you tell me to shoot you, just know I'm gonna pull some pot and not hesitate.
1: I've kind of figured that that would happen. I, I think that your trigger finger would be a little itchy on that one for sure.
2: <laughs> Very much so, man. But it was so fun talking to, of course, Audra Spaza from Blind Spot, man. And again, we you know, season two is underway and it's just it's it's kicking ass. What, I, what there's no way to, other way to say it. Well,
1: I mean, you go into these things. I'm sure is when Martin's doing the show and the cast as well, and you think, okay, how can we top ourselves? And to me, that's one of the hardest things in television to do, especially when you have such a strong first season like Blindspot did. How do you raise the bar? How do you top yourself? Especially worrying about the sophomore slump and all that. Man, not only do they do that, and they gave us so much. And we were talking about when we reviewed the show earlier. They gave us so much. Yeah. You know, they give us a lot of answers in this first episode, but there's still a ton of questions to follow.
2: There is. And again, I liked how, ever since really the first episode of last season, the whole concept of trust and who can you trust and whose side are you on, that whole form of tension has always been there. It's never gone away. And that was shown, you know, in the premiere and as we're progressing through the season.
1: Yeah, and she actually told us a couple things off the air that we're not going to share with you because we can't, but let me tell you guys, you want to definitely make sure you set your time, make sure you're on the couch or wherever the hell you watch TV to get to Blind Spot 8 o'clock Wednesday nights on NBC. They're bringing back Must See TV, dude. Yeah. This is Must See TV. You want the slogan back, you got it.
2: Exactly. Of course, they're going up against Arrow as well. So, I mean, that in itself, that's a big power play by Blind Oh, yeah. And I think if there's a show that can pull that kind of power play against a show like Arrow, I think it's Spot.
1: Well, if I was Oliver Queen, I'd be watching out for Zapata. That's all I'm, kind of, <laughs> I'm going to say. She, she doesn't wait, so I'd watch out.
2: I had come something. Bang! <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> now you are someone else on the floor.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but again, thanks to Audrey Spaza for coming on and talking about Blind Spot. Again, make sure you watch season two this year. It's just it's it's gotten off to a great start and it's just fantastic. But that's gonna do it for us here on the Down Nerdy podcast. But hey, if you want more of us, we're of course on social media. Go to Facebook.com slash Nerdy. We're also on Twitter as well at Downnerdy757. I'm at Merck M-E-R-C. With one arm, the one is spelled out. James, where can I find you on the Twitter?
1: I'm at James Ace Witham. That's W-I-T-H-A-M. If you feel like, man, I'm not going to remember all that, just go to our website, nerdypodcast.com We have a nifty little About Us section. You can read our little bios if you care, and you can find out where to find us on Twitter and social media. Also, find out all the stuff. That's going on in this week's show. You want to own the first season of Blind Spot digitally? We'll help you out with that as well. And a whole bunch of other stuff, including comic book reviews at down and And
2: as always, passive safe comic book reading. Always back and board your comics and make sure to wear a bulletproof vest around Audrey.